0: And we'll have a two-part series this week and next week, Lord willing, on uh, Understanding Communion. That's the title of our message for this week and next week. This is part one of Understanding Communion. And my hope is that we'll look at verses 23 through 26. I'm going to go ahead and read just so we can be familiar again with the text from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, down through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, says this. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper... For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the lord but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep but if we judged ourselves rightly we would not be judged, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well, it became apparent to me after our message last week Um, because I had a number of people come up afterwards and ask questions about what I just taught on. And we had a few minutes for questions at the end of the time, but I wanted to open up this time just uh, giving you an opportunity to ask more questions about communion. Some people, uh, a couple of people came up to me and said, I, you know, didn't really understand very much at all about communion, and some were wondering if they have been taking it in an unworthy manner. And I said, well, the good news is that we're not taking communion today. And, uh, and, and uh, the other good news is that uh, you know it's not an unforgivable sin. And that you're, as long as you're here, you're still alive. You're, the Lord hasn't taken you. And even those who were taken were believers and taken to be with him. But if you're still here with us... Um, and you're healthy, that's another reason to be thankful. And we'll get into some of that next week when we talk about self-examination. But my desire, and Lord willing, I believe we're having communion next Sunday after this service. And so the idea is that this three-week series will end and then we'll go partake of communion. But I really want you to be thinking about it this week um, and having an opportunity to examine yourself and prepare as much as possible before we partake uh, next Sunday. That being said, let's just open it up. Are there any questions about what I said last week or really what we're going to deal with today from verses 23 through 26 specifically? Do you have any questions as you come to this passage? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the question is, um, it's obvious if you have bitterness in your own heart, you should go deal with um, a person or an individual and try to be reconciled with them. Um, but what if you suspect that somebody might have bitterness in their heart towards you in something, should you go to them? And I believe the answer is yes. Uh, first of all, let me define a couple of terms. Um, there's, the, there's the idea of harboring bitterness in your, in your heart, which we are never to do. There's also the concept of having an attitude or being willing, a willingness to forgive, which we should always have. And then there is an act of forgiveness, which can be a one-time act, whereby you promise to bury something and not bring it up to the other person again. It's a, the word forgive means literally to separate or apart, and so you are removing it. As far as the East is from the West, our Lord taught, or actually in the Old Testament, God says about Israel... Um, that uh, I have, um, I will remember your sins no more. And so it's an active not remembering, choosing to not remember other people's sins against you. Um, and that can be done through a two way transaction. I believe it also can be done unilaterally and unconditionally because the essence of forgiveness is covering over. But there's something else that you mentioned, and that's reconciliation. And while reconciliation can be done quickly and be present at the time of forgiveness, reconciliation also uh, can and often is a process. And so um, I believe that as far as it depends on you, you're to be at peace with all men. And so if you um, if you are um, uh, at the altar praying uh, uh, and, and you want to be reconciled, go be reconciled with the person, then come back and offer your gift. Uh, I don't think in Mark's gospel it teaches that. In Matthew 5, it says if you're Standing there praying, and you have anything against anyone, forgive them. And so, I believe it can be done unilaterally and, and unconditionally. It can be done by going to them. Luke seventeen three and Matthew eighteen fifteen certainly teach us that we are to go and confront individually. That doesn't. And, and there, the obligation relies upon the person sinned upon, and yet um, uh, the person who who was yeah who is sinned against um but if you know that somebody or you have an idea that somebody has something against you and you have an opportunity to go to them go to them and i always encourage people to begin it this way and that is just practically speaking that you would go to them and say um have you have i done anything to offend you is there anything between us that's a great question to ask somebody and if they say no you know not at all even if you're not sure that they're telling the truth Love believes all things. Now, if you know they're not telling the truth, that's, that's, that's something different. But you are, you are to believe what's best. And so then you could respond in, in a way that's like, oh, I'm so grateful, you know, because I thought that things were a little awkward. But now that I know you have nothing against me, that puts me at peace. And if they say, you know, well, I, yeah, I was offended by something you did because you've asked them, have I offended you? Um, then you could say, well, I I would love to hear about it. My heart is one that is is certainly willing to repent, and uh, I know that we're somewhat myopic, and we see ourselves, and we we don't often look at ourselves the way other people do, and so I welcome you to look at me and help me to see anything in me, any sin in me that that could change, that, that I need to change. So I think that's a great attitude, something that we should be doing continuously in the church. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Yeah, what does the Bible say about communion outside the church and with others or at a wedding? It's a good question. I uh, will deal somewhat with some of that in, in this text, and I could just show you um, something interesting, and that is that, um, uh, let's see, in chapter 10, he speaks about communion in verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread in which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. That word there is koinonia, that is the word fellowship, and this is where we get the word communion for, and it is a sharing with other believers. There's a partnership. The word uh, fellowship, it means a partnership, and therefore, Everyone who's a believer has that, and for that reason, when a couple comes to me to help to, for, to perform their marriage ceremony, I, I do not recommend, and I will not offer communion to just the bride and the groom. If you really want to have a communion service at your wedding, then let's have one with all believers who are present, and let's encourage those who are not believers to abstain and talk about why that is so, because it is a fellowship of all believers. It's not something that we do individually and really should be done among the whole body of of Christ. Uh, We we don't, uh, if we have a retreat for just our group, we probably wouldn't have communion because we're part of a larger church group here. And um, so I I really think it should represent fellowship among the church body. Yes? Uh, Does communion today look like communion back then? Because they talked about people going in hungry. Yeah. Okay, that's a great question, that will lead us into this text. Does communion today look like communion back then? Because why are they hungry? And we only get just a little tiny wafer, and it seems like we're still hungry even after that. Um, So communion in the early church was often um, uh, performed... With what was called a love feast. That term is found in Jude chapter 1, verse 12, and it's referred to in other places. And I believe this is one of the passages that describes what a love feast was about. History tells us that the love feast reenacted several things that Christ did with his disciples. They would come and they would wash one another's feet, they would share a common meal, um, and it would be somewhat like a potluck dinner, but it would be a communal meal where somehow all the food was provided. And also, they would actually um, then have a time of communion where they do the bread and the cup. And so there are churches that practice those, especially around Easter time. On Good Friday, they will, do, they will have churches come together for a common meal and a communion service together. Some churches will even do a foot washing uh, as well. And so those, those were three elements history tells us, and we certainly see a, two of them in the Scripture like, here's a common meal. And what happens, as we saw last week, is that there were some people who were, were probably the wealthier people because our text last week in chapter 11 said that some had none, those who had none. And it seems like those who were poor, potentially slaves, or other people who had to work, uh, some were coming early, eating all the food and getting drunk off the communion wine to the extent where other people would come and have nothing, and they would be hungry. And so some were drunk and some were hungry. And, and, and Paul writes that in a way that we look at this shocked by it. But the whole tone of the passage is more shocked by the fact that they weren't loving one another, that they weren't really having the Lord's Supper. It was something completely different. And uh, when I come to this passage, it's interesting. I'm so grateful for this passage because um, it is one of the clearest that we have When it comes to understanding communion, just the way it's laid out and what it's about. And last week, I asked questions, and we had people give various ideas of why we do communion. This week, I want to go through that again, and I want to actually show you from the text why we have communion, this week and next week, so that you can take this text and explain it to other people. But because it's a terrible circumstance, a really horrific one in the church, where people are being neglected it, you read it, and you kind of read it with a little bit of disgust, and there's a lot of filth involved in it. And we'll see more of that even next week, the judgment and why that was happening. But um, it kind of reminds me of uh, a mind dump. Uh, when I lived in Johannesburg, and if you've been to Johannesburg, what's interesting about that city is that early on, um, they they found the biggest gold reef in the world underneath the city, and so they started mining it throughout the city. And they would pile up these huge, massive, taking like ten city blocks, um, mine dumps that look like mountains that only go up so high, and then they stop, and they're just this yellowish, almost rusted look looking dirt. And that's uh, in in the in the uh, 1950s, when they were really mining a lot that way. They were refining it, getting the gold out of it, and then dumping the extra dirt next to the refinery. And as the refineries moved around, they left the dirt there. And so still in that city, there, there's lots of land in the middle of the city and throughout inter- interspersed where there's just these big mine dumps. But in the early 2000s, they realized that they had refined the refining property uh, a process so much that they could tear down those mine dumps reprocess it, and get more gold out the second time than they did the first time. And that's what this reminds me of, this passage, because this passage has a lot of dirt in it, and it looks like, ooh, yuck. But <clears throat> every time I come to it, it's just so rich, and there's so much more out of it. And that's, and, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Um, and, and before we get to that, I just want to mention another reason why... The, the topic of communion is so confusing. And I believe that one of the reasons why communion is so confusing, even in the Protestant church, is because of the Roman Catholic view of communion. Roman Catholicism actually refers to communion as a sacrament. They get that word sacrament, sacramentum in the Latin. In the Latin when the Latin Bible came out, um, they used that word, they translated the Greek word musterion. The word musterion is the one we get mystery from. When you think about Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 31 and 32, when Paul writes about marriage and he says, uh, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined together to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes the Old Testament there, In Ephesians 5.32 says, this mystery, this musterion in the Latin, this sacramentum, is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. And so the term sacrament, which refers to a mystery, marriage became a sacrament for them. Now, we don't speak about sacraments in the Protestant church because we understand that we're more concerned about ordinances, that is, uh, things that the Lord has instructed His church to do, like baptism, like communion. And so when we look at those ordinances for the church, we think about the fact that um, this is not just uh, something that's a mystery that we have no clue about or that is, is mystic. And I think thinking about it in that term as an ordinance helps us because we understand more about it because it's laid out for us in Scripture. But Another reason why the Protestant Church, because we reformed it was in the, even in the 1200s, they, in they, they, the 1200s, the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the sacramental system and transubstantiation, which is one view of communion. Um, and when the reformers came around in the 1500s, they were great, but not all of them were fully developed in their theology. They had so much. Catholic upbringing and so much medieval thinking that even Calvin and Luther were confused when it came to communion. And so I just want to open by mentioning four different views of communion. I'm going to go through these quickly. It's not the most important thing. I want to get to the text, but the first view is the Catholic view, the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view of communion is one of transubstantiation. In that view, one of the distinctives of it is that there is one substance And that substance changes. It it morphs into something else. And the substance is actually bread and wine. And they believe that at some point in the service, when you're taking communion, that the the bread actually changes into the literal uh, real presence, the real presence of Christ's body and his real blood. And it's one of the reasons, and there are many reasons that, that have been told, but the, the Roman Catholic Church historically has not allowed actually the people to take the cup because the cup is the blood of Christ, and it was feared early on that someone might spill a drop here or there. Uh, and so only the priests drink, and then they give a wafer to those others, and so they partake of the blood and the, the body, but people only get the body. So it's an it's interesting history, but when the Reformers broke away from the Catholic Church, this was an important issue for them. And indeed, people have died over this issue. The Covenanters in the 1700s, some of them died because of their the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, which actually recommits the sacrifice of Christ If it's his real, if it is his real body being sacrificed again and again and again. It means that his sacrifice was not complete. And so it's a heretical view. was considered to be a heretical view by the the reformers, and we would also consider it to be a heretical view. There are Roman Catholics today who do not believe what their church teaches them, and they have a biblical understanding of it, but that's in spite of what their church teaches, and their church is not going to reform on that, and they made it clear in the counter-reformation at the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s, and they even doubled down more on this view of transubstantiation, and so... um, in their doctrine they are bound to this and they have not relented on this and it is a heresy and it is something that if somebody's in the Roman Catholic Church this alone would be good enough reason to get out of the church but a greater reason would be because they don't teach the gospel because the gospel that they teach is one by faith plus works not by saved by grace alone so uh, when when not faith alone through grace so um, when we think about Um, the gospel is being obscured by the Roman Catholic Church, which was the primary reason for the Reformation. But a second view is not only the Catholic view, which is one substance that changes, but we have the Lutheran view, which is a view of two substances. He believes that there's a real presence. Luther taught that there was a real presence uh, um, and and that somehow it's called consubstantiation because it coexists uh, with the bread and the cup, that somehow there is a real presence, and that's a term that can be defined a number of different ways, and Luther spends a lot of time on it, but consubstantiation teaches that there is the real presence of the Lord, of his real body and real blood, somehow um, supernaturally among and around the elements. And I'm not going to go any further on that, but I will talk about Calvin's view. So we have the, the, the Catholic view, the Lutheran view, and then Calvin's view interesting, Calvin in his institutes was not clear on this either. He had a view very similar to to Luther's, and I think part of it was that Calvin respected Luther so much he didn't want to really contradict Luther, even though they were trying to reform from the church, but they really had a great respect for each other. Um, But he he believed in two real substances, somehow coexisting, um, but he didn't say that it was something that was supernatural in a real way. Rather, he says it was something that emanated from heaven. It was, he denied a real presence, but he wasn't ready to say it's just symbolic. And so here's a quote from Calvin. He says, just as the sun's rays come from the sun to the earth, so something emanated from the body of Christ in heaven down to the Lord's table. So I don't want to spend too much time on this. It's really splitting hairs. Um, uh, their views are very similar. But we can be thankful for men like Zwingli, who was a Swiss reformer, and Zwingli had a different view that makes it clear, and his view is that there is only one substance, and it is symbolic. It's a symbolic act where we have real bread and a real cup with real wine in it, but it symbolizes the body and blood of Christ. He believed that even the resurrected body of Christ is present in heaven right now. It calls it local, the local presence. And so, therefore, it cannot be locally present in every church uh, on Communion Sunday. Yet spiritually, Christ is present as he always is. And so he believes in the spiritual presence, but but communion is just a symbolic act. So if you really want to summarize these, you can say that transubstantiation is one element that changes Calvin and Luther's view were two separate elements, and Zwingli's view is it's one element, but it's symbolic of the other element. So if I didn't confuse you all the more, let's get into really uh, this passage. This passage that in verse 20, Paul had said, therefore, when you meet together, it's not the Lord's Supper. He's saying, you may call it the Lord's Supper, but what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper because it has nothing to do with communion. And we would say, what is communion? And that's where we look at our passage this morning where we see actually seven details about the Lord's Supper that should help you to worship at the Lord's table in a more meaningful way. Seven details that will help you to worship the Lord better during communion. And I'm gonna list these out We're not going to get to all of them today, but I'm going to try and get through most of them. Uh, So the, the seven details are that communion was instituted by Christ, and I'll go over these again more slowly. I'm just going to list them out now so you can recognize them better when we get to them. But it's instituted by Christ. Communion is contrasted with betrayal. It's associated with gratitude. It's commemorated for remembrance. It's designed for proclamation. It's anticipating a return and it's demanding self-examination. So let's look at those seven reasons or seven details about communion. First of all, it was instituted by Christ the very beginning of verse 23 in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now, it's significant here, I think, that that Paul, in the middle of his letter, says, I received this from the Lord. Um, Why would he say that? All scripture is God-breathed, And all apostles, when they wrote, authoritatively wrote on behalf of God. So it seems a a little strange for him to, in the middle of a section on communion, to say, I received this from the Lord. Um, Paul did say things like that when he was trying to emphasize important truths. We see that in Galatians 1. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7 as well, but... um, What's interesting about this is when you look at the history of the dating of various books, many scholars would agree that Paul probably didn't have access to any of the four Gospels. Paul, 1 Corinthians was written sometime in the early to mid-50s, and most of the Gospels would have been written after the mid-50s with the exception of maybe Matthew, and Mark was probably mid-50s. So even if Matthew had been written because it was so difficult to copy them and distribute them, it is doubtful that Paul would have had access to them at that stage. It's possible, but it's certainly not necessary. And either way, whether Paul is just saying um, that... uh, through the apostles and their teaching who were eyewitnesses and it came from the Lord and and by that way I also received it and I'm passing it on to you but it just seems like he's speaking in a more personal way to me here I received from the Lord which would imply that um, the, the Lord himself taught this to Paul so I wouldn't be dogmatic on that, but Paul seems to be emphasizing the fact that he received this from the Lord and he's delivering it to them. Either way, this is God's word. This is the authoritative God's word. It's just an interesting section where he speaks about Paul actually receiving from the Lord details about communion, something for which he was not present at that last supper. He was not saved at that last supper. Um, So we see here this idea of it was instituted by Christ, and that really needs to be the focus. This is the Lord telling his church to do this, and it has been delivered not only to the apostles to do this, but to members of the congregation, and it certainly seems, notice the tense of the verbs here. I received it, past tense, I delivered it to you. So they had already been they had already learned about this before he's now teaching to them again so it was expected for early churches and the idea is that this would be practiced not only among the apostles but among their disciples and their disciples and their disciples and even today a second detail about the communion in our passage not only is it instituted by christ but it is contrasted with betrayal i find this fascinating that at the end of verse 23 It says, which I deliver to you that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Why why that choice of words is interesting. He could have said on the night of the Last Supper. He could have said on the night that the disciples fell asleep in the garden when Jesus asked them to pray. He could have said on the night before the Lord was crucified. But um, he talks about the night in which he was betrayed. Take your your finger and hold it in 1 Corinthians 11 and go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Um, This is significant because in John, chapter 13, in verse 21, it describes that night. It says. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. I want you to note that word, troubled. And testified, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John, the writer of this gospel. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, "Tell this to Jesus, tell us of who it is of whom he is, or said to him, John, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking, Jesus is speaking. He, leaning back on thus Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? This is one time where Peter didn't open up his mouth. He just instigated, got somebody else to ask the question for him. Um, Then Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him, so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Amazingly enough, he says, this is the guy who's going to betray me. He dips a morsel of, of bread into a dip, and then he hands it to Judas. And he says, um, he gave it to the son of Simeon Iscariot, and then verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Seems like they're still confused. Verse 29, for some were supposing that because Jesus had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give, them some, give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and is God glorified in him. So it was at this point, during that meal on that last night, that he sent Judas out and they were confused about this. Why is Judas going out? But he identified the one who betrayed him, and he was troubled, the text says us. That word trouble is revulsion, deep agitation. Literally, it means to stir up. It's the same word used in John 12 to, to, when describing Christ's feelings about the cross. And, and I think about that because, you know, when you, when you look at You know, we have these times in our lives where we are stirred up inside, where there's something going on and you can't sleep and you're thinking about it and you're agitated and you're, you just can't, the the tape is being played over and over in your mind and you're just like, what do I do about this? That's the backdrop. That's the setting behind communion. That this is what's going on in the Lord's mind and heart and soul is that he is troubled, because someone very close to him is betraying him and there he is at the passover feast the last supper let's take a look at the third detail about the lord's supper that will help your worship at the lord's table to be more meaningful not only is it instituted by christ not only is it contrasted with betrayal but it's associated with gratitude 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24, when he had given thanks, the Greek word translated giving thanks is from eucharistao, which we get the word eucharist from it. Sometimes we, use, we talk about this as the eucharist, the thanksgiving, the time to give thanks. Now, now, again, this should jump off the page to us because we're reading about communion, a sweet fellowship and the Lord with his disciples, and it's contrasted with betrayal, and the very next thing we see Christ doing is giving thanks. And that's a challenge to our own hearts, because when we're stirred up and troubled, do we see it from a divine perspective enough that we could see thanks? And I don't have time to go into it this morning, but I propose to you that every situation that we find ourselves in has reasons for us to be grateful to God. And and uh, I, I know that firsthand because I've shared this with you before, but in, in 1984, my mom received a blood transfusion from somebody who was HIV positive. And we found out in 1986, and she died 10 years later in 1996, the year I graduated from seminary. I was 26 years old. And when I was thinking, I'm 52 now if you doing the math, but the the I don't want you to be distracted. Here's... here's the thing, here's the thing, my mom got to the point where she honestly told people becoming HIV positive is one of the best things that ever happened to me because her relationship with Christ was so much better and she grew so much more dependent upon him that she was thankful, genuinely thankful for this. I was talking to my sister this week and we were saying, I was saying, do you think maybe mom actually got saved after that? Because we grew up in a Christian home, we thought she was, but her life was so different after that. So so I, I just, I point that out to say that I know that there are people who are going through very difficult circumstances, and yet there is always a reason for gratitude, and as we're reading this passage even casually, and we see the contrast there between the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So we come to a fourth detail. We've seen that communion is instituted by Christ. It's contrasted with betrayal. It's associated with gratitude. And let me just, uh, okay, I'll come back to that. Um, It's commemorated for remembrance. It's commemorated for remembrance. And when he would given thanks, it says in verse 24, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we talked about last week that for years, the bread had represented the exodus from slavery. Every year, since the Jews were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they celebrated the Passover, and there was a time there where they passed around unleavened bread. And there are at least two significant reasons why we find in Scripture about unleavened bread. One is there's a sense of urgency with it, because on that initial night in which the Israelites were to have a meal, and put blood on the doorposts and the lentils of their house, and the angel of death was going to pass over. But at that meal, they were also they were making bread, and there was unleavened bread, and they were to take unle- unleavened bread with them because there wasn't time to put yeast in it. In those days, yeast was an ingredient where you would have a, piece, a little piece of rotten... It was a sourdough bread, basically, a little piece of rotten dough. You'd mix it in with the good dough, and then you'd have to wait and let it rise... And, and, and so that it could work its way throughout the whole batch of dough, and then uh, you would have this nice risen bread. There wasn't time for that. There was a sense of urgency. We're going, so don't put leaven in it. That's, that was part of the instructions to them, so that's why they ate unleavened bread at that time. And we're reminded of a sense of urgency when we think about giving our lives to Christ, being delivered not from Egyptian slavery, but being delivered from sin, But leaven is also used in the scripture to speak about influence, influence either good or bad, and there's an institute, there's a verse in um, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 6 through 8 where uh, we have a terrible situation in the church with uh, sexual immorality going on in the church, and the worst part of it is the church was accepting of it, and he warns them a little leaven leavens the whole dough, the whole bunch, the whole loaf, so be careful because something evil can spread quickly. Sometimes it's used positively to speak of something good. But anyways, in this very book, he'd already spoken about unleavened bread. But Jesus didn't take the bread and say, eat this in remembrance of the Passover lamb, which was slaughtered for the people in, in Egypt. The Israelites are people who have escaped. Rather, he gave thanks and broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is for you. It must have been amazing for them. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we don't believe in transubstantiation, because there's no way that Jesus meant for his disciples to take a literal bite out of his body, and his body was there. And so how could transubstantiation even happen in that original Last Supper? But Jesus... is the Passover lamb. This is my body, which is for you. You know, they had a a Passover lamb, which was slaughtered. I always think about this when I think about the Passover. When it was told them in in the following generations uh, to prepare for the Passover, they were to bring an unblemished lamb into their home four days before the slaughter. Any of you guys have pets? You have kids? The whole lamb needed to be eaten. So, I mean, for some, it would have been a small lamb, little lammy. I mean, the first thing happens is a name Little lammy. Come here, lammy. Oh, it's lammies. And then, you know, the idea is that the family would get close to it. And then on that fourth day, the lamb is slaughtered and the blood is put on the door of your house, on the doorposts and across the top of the door. And you know that every little kid who grew up with that was saying, why did little Lammy have to die? And the message was, God delivered his people, and if the lamb wasn't a sacrifice, then the firstborn child would have had to die. How would you like to be without your brother tonight? And then you say, don't answer that. Um, LAUGHTER but they can get the message there. But some of the, two of the most beautiful words in our passage there, this is my body, which is for you. Jesus is the lamb. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There were four cups at the Passover meal. The first cup was at the beginning, a cup of red wine, and it was presented to everyone, and it was passed around, and everyone took a sip. And there was a prayer, and there was celebration. And then the second cup, after the first cup, they passed around bitter herbs dipped in fruit and a fruit sauce, and they sang praise psalms from the halal psalms, Psalm 113 through 18. And then they had the second cup. And after the second cup was the meal, where the bread was passed around, and then the lamb was eaten, the main course. And after that meal, there was the third cup. And and that second cup, it was after that, that the Lord was thankful. Thankful for the sacrifice of lambs that delivered people from slavery, but thinking about the sacrifice he was about to make as the lamb and thankful to his father for his plan of deliverance. The third cup, there was a prayer after that and the rest of the halal was sung and the fourth cup looked towards a celebration of the coming kingdom. But it was after that third cup that Jesus spoke about the cup for communion. We know that because in our passage, it says after supper, saying, so after they had eaten the lamb, and in Luke 22, 20, it says, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So according to the Passover feast, the cup represented the lamb's blood that was smeared on those doorposts and lintels, and the new covenant distinguished it from all previous covenants, including the Mosaic covenant. Whenever God reconciles sinful man To himself, with a covenant, there was blood involved. There was a sacrifice involved. Um, In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 10.4, Even though there was shedding of blood of animals in the Old Testament, they they did not remove sin. But it was a reminder of sin. It says in Hebrews 10.4, but this is not possible. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And Hebrews 10.3 calls it a reminder. And this this is why changing it to the new covenant is such a great picture because the old covenant was about a reminder of sin. But the new covenant is about the removal of sin. If if you invited me over to your home for a meal and we sat in your living room and you had a brand new white carpet and you gave me some coffee, and let's just suppose I spilled the coffee, some drops of coffee on your carpet, and I said, I'm I'm terribly sorry, here, here, Let me help you. And I go to the kitchen, I get some grape juice, and I come and draw circles around that stain with grape juice to remind them of the need to remove that stain. (laughs) You would not forget that. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was a reminder of our need to remove the stain. But the new covenant is about the removal of the stain. Hebrews 10.10, 10, we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hebrews 10.19, we can enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. First Peter 1 Peter and 19 you were not redeemed with corruptible, corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we think about the cross and the blood and the devastation. But we think about the removal of sin. It has nothing to do with, it's not as though if you, if you withdrew blood from Jesus and touched it on people. It's his death. Blood meant death. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again, each man, his neighbor, and And each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. How beautiful is that? That those who repent of their sin and give their lives to Christ As the sacrificial lamb who pays for their sin fully on their cross, he remembers their sins no more. No wonder we could sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Isaiah looked forward to a day where the stain would be removed, and he wrote in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Communion was instituted by Christ, contrasted with, contrasted with betrayal, associated with gratitude, commemorated for remembrance, and a fifth day all, the fifth, fifth detail, communion was designed for proclamation, designed for proclamation. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. We talked about this some last week, but this is, this idea, this word proclaim here, the word is kataangelo angelo. We get the word angel from it. It's a messenger. It's somebody who is a a, a, we are messaging the gospel. Why do we partake of communion? Because it's a visual, tangible reminder to us of the sacrifice that was made for us. It's a time for us to be purposeful. There's there's something about uh, verse 26 with the verbs. For as often as you, it's... um second person plural, y'all. For as often as you all eat this bread and y'all drink this cup. It's something that we do together. It's something that we all share in together. It's a reason to rejoice. It's one of the reasons why communion is for all of us, as was asked before. Again, even the verbs show it, that this is for a multitude. This is for the church body. In fact, the whole context of 1 Corinthians 11 in this section is the fact that they were not allowing everyone to partake together. And so really we are proclaiming together as a body our Lord and what he has accomplished. And finally, we see that communion is anticipating a return. We'll get to the seventh one next week, but those last words of verse 26. Verse 26 says, for as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a reminder that when he comes again, um, he will be with us, which is another reason why we don't believe in that there has to be a real change in the elements, so he is with us, because he will be with us, and it's an anticipation of that day. Matthew 26, 29 says. Jesus said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One other observation from verse 26, and that is that as often as you eat this bread, and oftentimes people say, well, how often should we eat it? It doesn't say, but it should be often. Some churches only do it once a year. Some churches, our church does it once a month. Some churches do it every week. I would say this. It should be often enough that you don't forget. But it shouldn't be so frequent that it loses its meaning. And that's why we're going over this now, even preparing for next week. Another question that comes up sometimes is, well, what about my children? At what age should my kids start taking communion? Communion. Well, I would say communion is something that we do as believers, and so they must be professing believers. But I I say this to parents when it comes to both communion and baptism. If your child at an early age comes to faith in Christ and wants to be baptized or partake in communion, it really is important that they understand why they're doing it. That's clear. From scripture. And so when, when families come to me and want to talk about that, what I say to the children is, I'm going to give you an assignment. You go home, and on your own, you start writing out what communion is about. What is baptism about? And we'll have some conversations, but I want to see it written from you. I want to see an understanding, something that your parents haven't written, but you've written. And when you've been able to communicate it you know, on paper, then then I'm happy to talk to you about baptism or communion that's That's what I have done over the years with with young children because children do mature at different ages. Um, so I know I've kind of rushed through those first six. Let me just give them to you again. Communion was instituted by Christ, contrasted with betrayal, associated with gratitude, commemorated for remembrance, and designed for proclamation. And it's anticipating a return. The seventh one, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, and that is it's demanding self-examination. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the fact that you are a God who gives endurance and encouragement. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of unity among ourselves, among our congregation here as we follow Jesus Christ so that with one heart and with one mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.